Well, after the preaching of God's word, we'll sing from hymn 67 in the first four stanzas, one to four of 67, hymn 67. I'll encourage you to have your Bibles open again. Our text will be from Psalm 39. So we'll be looking at that psalm this afternoon in our worship service and praise of our God. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the passing of time is an issue for all of us, not just for seniors. Just think of this past year. Winter finished, then spring broke through, summer came, and then the fall once again, and here we are back in the winter months. The sun was bright and high in the sky in the middle of the summer, but now it is in the southern horizon and the days are short. The shadows quickly come back. What does the passing of time do for us? What does the changing of the season in another year do for us? Well, it should give us a heart of wisdom. Our society is absorbed with a massive denial of time. We remove the elderly to retirement villages. Women put on cosmetics to stay looking young. People pluck out gray hair. Or they'll pay big bucks for facelifts and other cosmetic surgery to reverse the aging process. But it's all in vain. Because time marches on. If we include this with any sense of our own sin and God's judgment, then indeed, life seems empty at best. Psalm 39 expresses a deep awareness of a world that is passing away. It tells it like it is. It doesn't stroke us and and make make it sound like we're a great bunch. It's relentless to tell us what we really deserve before the Lord. The issue is severe for the psalmist because of his own sin and God's displeasure. And that makes, that makes sense, the futility of life all the more. Thus, he feels like a stranger toward God. If God won't lift up his wrath, then the psalmist will vanish away. He needs God's mercies. This is a kind of psalm that we have to read frequently because it brings blessing to the heart. It's a wisdom psalm, just like Psalm 90 is a wisdom psalm. There are basically two thoughts that are found within here. It moves first from breaking the silence in verses 1 to 3 to the question of life's meaning in verses 4 to 6. And then it goes on to call for forgiveness in verses 7 to 11, which then concludes with a word of assurance of answered prayer in verses 12 and 13. So hear then God's word, Psalm 39, under the theme, a prayer in the shadowlands. And we'll look at this with two points. First of all, Lord, make me know my end. And secondly, Lord... Grant me 
hope. So first of all, Lord, make me know my end. The first three verses are a preface, you might say, explaining the circumstances that the psalmist is in his composition of what he's going through. They explain how the psalmist had been trying hard to stay silent and not express what was troubling him. He was seeking to be wise and not to sin with his tongue. We might wonder about that. Why keep silent? Well, you know from Scripture how the tongue, if it is not bridled and used carefully, can do great damage. James 3 speaks about that. It says, The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of of life, and set on fire by hell. You can start a fire with your words. It's very easy to do. That's why scripture always calls you to be careful how you speak and what you say. That in itself is a good news resolution to make a point of being careful with our words. We do well to be wise with our tongues, after all, according to Proverbs chapter 27, verse, Proverbs, 20, Proverbs 17, rather, verse 28 says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. That's why David is so careful. He's seeking to be wise. But now that the fire that was burning up inside him, it needed to come out. This undoubtedly was a real-life experience. David was burdened. What was bothering him so much? Why was he so troubled? Why is he not saying anything at all? Well, the reason he begins this way is partly to heighten our interest into what is coming next. It makes us ask questions. What is so wrong? What is he going through that is making him suffer so much pain? And verse 3 says, My heart became hot within me as I mused, or while I was murmuring with meditation, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. Well, there are a number of things that this teaches us. Some things that have already been stated One is, we do have to be careful about what we say. That's very important. We do sin with our mouths. And thus, number two, it's better to be silent than to say things that can be used against God by wicked people. It's not wise to be anxious to share grief with the ungodly, he's saying here. And number three, we must come to God with our troubles. We must speak to him. Philippians 4 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So David's silence 
turns to speech. Like an emotional torrent, he cannot contain himself. And we see what he says when he opens his mouth in that prayer, verses 4 to 6. Notice those words once again. He says, O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. The questions that have agitated David's heart are now addressed to the Lord. And what are they? Well, they're the issues of death and life. The end, verse 4, means the end of a definite time period rather than a goal. It's describing here death, the measure of days in the length of human life in the world. When he knows the time of his death and the length of life, he will know how frail he is. The key word that we find here within this section is the Hebrew word hebel. Hebel means breath. That's what we find, for example, in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, the way it begins. You know how that book begins with those words, vanity, vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Our lives are a breath. They're a mere breath. They're like a vapor. And that is indeed the way that Scripture describes us. Again, from James, we read these words. James says, Come now, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow we will go to do such and such at a city and buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a time and then vanishes away. Our lives are a vapor. Hebel is the word. And that also is followed by another Hebrew word, which is Salem. Where Hebel means breath, Salem means shadow. Surely every man is a shadow. Time is fleeting. You gather wealth before you know it. As you gather it together, your life is over. Your days are, are, are gone. You, you can gather it all to the very end so that you have sufficient, have what is sufficient for the very end. But that's the irony of life. Only when we're ready to die are we ready to live. Only when we're ready to die are we ready to live. But our lives are a shadow. David here accepts both his death and his life in light of his own end. And that is the lesson about time. And it's a lesson about another year coming and going. Life is very short. We're transient. 
We're here for a little while. We find that to be the case because of death. We return to the dust. We originally were made to be fruitful and to multiply. We were made to live forever and to see our families grow. It's natural for us to want to see our loved ones live and not to taste death. But in Adam, we ate from that forbidden fruit and are condemned to death. As God said to Adam and Eve, the day that you eat of this, you shall surely die. And they chose death. That's why God turns man to destruction and death. Psalm 90, which is like Psalm 39, says, So teach us to number our days. Why? So that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Just consider your sin and what your sin deserves. God is a consuming fire. He's angry with sin. If anyone knew that, Moses did. He led the people 40 years because of their wickedness against the Lord, only to see that their, their bodies were left in the wilderness to rot. God is a terrifying God. And nothing is hidden from his holy sight. So as you enter this year, this, this next one, what will it bring? Gladness or grief? Laughter or tears? We know that it will bring both by God's leading. Sometimes we will go to the house of feasting. Other times we're going to be going to the house of mourning. But through it all, when we ask God to bless us in our struggles, he will make us glad. Trouble and sorrow, it's all part of the human experience. We're the grass that flourishes and grows up, but in the evening it's cut down and it withers. That's why we turn to the Lord in prayer. And we must do that at the year end and also at the new year. Praying that the Lord would be gracious to us in these years of affliction. Trials are really blessings that we never asked for. Because they help us to mature and make us more complete. That's why God allows them. You groan and cry in the midst of them, but know that they are used of the Lord. He can make you joyful through them. James chapter 1 comes to mind. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. How do we handle life when things threaten our well-being? We must turn to the Lord and pray for his help and strength. We say that the joy of the Lord is our strength. We pray, Lord, make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us. In the years in which we have seen evil. Help us, Lord. Help us to carry on with your strength when we don't know what is ahead of us, nor do we know what the future might hold. 
And we also need to pray that we might find satisfaction in the unfailing love of the Lord. Alexander McLaren wrote, the only thing that will secure lifelong gladness is a heart that is satisfied with the experience of God's love. What an encouraging word that is. We can only find our satisfaction in Jesus Christ. As Augustine once prayed, you made us, you made us for yourself in our hearts Find no peace until they find rest in you. We don't know what tomorrow might bring. We don't know what this year has in store for us. But we can pray that God's mercy would be upon us. As one Puritan prayed in his prayer for the new year, he said, I bless you that you have veiled my eyes to the waters ahead. If you have appointed storms of tribulation, you will be with me in them. If I pass through tempests of persecution and temptation, I shall not drown. If I am to die, I shall see your face sooner. If a painful end is to be my lot, grant me grace that my faith fail not. If I'm to be cast aside from the service I love, I can, make, I, can, I can make not stipulation. Only glorify yourself in me, whether in comfort or trial, as a chosen vessel, ready always for your use. May that be our prayer. A prayer that God's mercy would be upon us all our days. Mercy for each moment. Mercy for those trying times. Mercy to handle what the Lord may put on our plates. Mercy for the dying hour. Because that's what we need. The mercy of the Lord. Well, brings us to what we see secondly within this psalm in his prayer, which is, Lord, grant me hope. This we see in the second half of the psalm. When, when David acknowledges that his hope is in God, he's ready to deal with the Lord. First he prays that the Lord would deliver him from his transgressions. Transgressions are the, the moral violations of God's will. They are the acts of rebellion or law-breaking. For God to deliver David would require God to forgive him. That's what David needs more than anything else. Just like we need that. Forgiveness. There's also a realization here of God's chastening hand upon him. We see that especially in verse 9. Note those words there. He said, I am mute. I do not open my mouth. For it is you who have done it. Verse 10. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. This gives us a little bit more insight into why he broke his silence and why he turned to the Lord in prayer. He was being corrected by God. The Lord was rebuking him in some way. He's being corrected. He was being made aware of how transitory life is. 
And life is like that. It's full of transitions. Health can leave us. Our illnesses and weaknesses remind us of our mortality. We become aware again and again of how short life is. Listen to how Job expresses this in Job chapter 7, verses 17 to 21. He says, What is man that you should exalt him? That you should set your heart on him? That you should visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long? Will you not look away from me and let me alone till I swallow my saliva? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target? So that I am a burden to myself. Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will die down in the dust, and you will seek me diligently, but I will no longer be. Can you understand that as well? Can you see how Job is asking the questions? Can you perceive how the question arises from the fact that we are so small and God is so great? Can you admit that you're a mere creature of today while God is of all eternity past, present, and future? If you do, then you realize what the Word of God is saying. There are many mysteries to life. We ask questions, and we receive no answers. We seek the Lord, but can we make sense of it all? The answer is that the very paradox of our human existence is that we have been made for eternity. We've been made to be eternal creatures, and we have been made for God himself. We have been made to have perfect fellowship so that no matter what we're dealing with now, even if it doesn't make sense to us, all that happens to us now has an eternal value. It brings us back to the truth of verse 7, where David says there, My hope, Lord, is in you. You are my lasting hope. And I look to you for meaning, David is saying. For nothing else does. For everything else is passing. You alone are eternal. And you made me for lasting fellowship. And again, it reminds us of the words of Psalm 90. And let the beauty of the Lord be upon us. Let the beauty of the Lord be upon us. Perhaps that seems a little bit of an odd thing to say. Perhaps we've never thought of the Lord as being beautiful. If that strikes us as a bit odd, then you haven't considered the full depth of who God really is. Of course, we have to understand that what, what we mean by the beauty of, of the Lord, God is not a, a creature. He's not like his creation. He's not a, the supreme beauty or the highest essence of all beauty. That's why the church fathers, men like Augustine, used to describe the beauty of God as if he is the supreme essence of his creation. But biblically speaking, when 
we pray that God's beauty would rest upon us. We're praying that we might take on his character. His beauty is seen in who he is. Like David says in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. He desired to know God personally in an intimate way by seeing God and knowing him and his character. All verses 12 and 13 contain the psalm's final petition. Note the words of verse 12. He says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. David considers himself a pilgrim. He's a stranger in a strange land. He's not a permanent resident. And it brings out that truth so often conveyed to us that this world, it's not, a, it's not our permanent home. That's the concept that we find in the Old Testament. Abraham is a great example of this. He was a stranger in a strange land. He was promised the entire land of Canaan, but he didn't own a bit of it except for the grave for his wife Sarah, the cave of Machpelah. And it's the same concept today in the New Testament. For instance, we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Beloved, I urge, you, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage against your soul. It's appealing to our citizenship. It's not of this world. And therefore, we're to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which would draw us away from that heavenly citizenship. Hebrews 11 says the same thing. Hebrews 11, verse 3. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That's what it was like for the Old Testament saints. They were pilgrims in this world, but lived by faith in the Lord. And it leads to the next chapter, chapter 12 of Hebrews, where it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Consider him endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you do not grow weary or become faint-hearted. That's where the entire counsel of God's word puts it all into perspective. We live short lives. It's true. Even when you're in your 70s or your 80s or maybe your 90s or 100s, our days are short. And we need to turn to the one 
who is eternal. Christ is eternal. When he came in the flesh, he lived a short life, 33 years. His life, though, was the most significant of all. He lived and he died to do what? To take away our sins. If we live for him, our lives will be significant as well. However short they may be in comparison to eternity. Again, as Alexander McLaren says, the lives that are lived before God cannot be trifles. That's why David concludes his prayer with his words in verse 13. Where he says, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. It's not exactly an easy read. Lord, take your gaze away from me. We prefer to say, Lord, look at us. But this is a different kind of gaze. This is not a gaze of favor. It's a correcting one. Just like Psalm 90. It's not exactly a pleasant psalm to read about being consumed by God. But that's the truth. And it points out that we need the mercy of God. We can make an illustration about that just in the fact that we're here today or that you woke up this morning. It was his mercy that you woke up this morning because his judgment should have killed you last night. You don't deserve to survive through the night. Since God is just, we deserve to be struck down. But God is merciful. He's taken away the plague against us when and only when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. And that's essentially the same prayer. Lord, we need the gaze of your mercy, not the gaze of your wrath. We need the look of your love, not the wrath of your anger. That's why we need to turn to God again in the new year, asking for his favor to be upon us. For in Christ, your life isn't a mere vapor. In Christ, your days are not just merely a shadow. In Christ, your end has a purpose, and it is found in his beauty and in his power. And therefore, in the year 2020, may the Lord be your perfect vision. May he give you a perfect 2020 vision as you look to him. And may all glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. Amen.